There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. This is Conversations about Eastern Europe. Today I speak with Maria Publik from Kiev. She lives in Kiev and has lived there since almost the start of the full-scale invasion. We talk about how the war has affected the life of the Ukrainians and then we talk about how it has affected her work as an online English teacher in Kiev as well. Enjoy! Welcome to a conversation about Ukraine with Maria Publik from Kiev, who is in Kiev right now and has been in Kiev throughout the most of this war. And that makes it interesting for me to hear what you have to say, first and foremost about living in Kiev, but also about how you go about with your work and yeah, just your um, daily life in general. Um, can you um, just start by presenting yourself? Um, yeah, what who you are, what you're doing, what your background is, and so on. And then I will, yeah, talk a bit about myself afterwards so that you also get a sense of me. Sure. Hi. Um, nice to see you once again. Uh, I'm Maria, and yeah, um, Kiev is my hometown, and um, I've lived here all my life. Um, to To set things straight, um, I was absent uh, during the full-scale war in the first weeks uh, because I was super frightened physically. Uh, so I uh, fled to like the western part of the Ukraine, to the mountains, uh, to the Carpathians. Uh, then I just realized I can, you know, move on uh, without my hometown. So I decided to come back uh, within a few weeks. Um, and yeah, that was probably one of my best decisions, I would say. Um, I'm an entrepreneur and um, an educator in uh, online education, English learning. So that's what I do. All right. And I think it makes perfectly sense that you weren't in Kiev initially when the yeah when the full-scale invasion happened um were, were there a lot of people just to um yeah take this question in the beginning whether were were there a lot of people fleeing to western ukraine and maybe to some of the neighboring countries in the beginning that have now come back to kiev like you um yeah as, as far as i'm concerned um a lot of people have fled um I guess the figures like come up to millions, um, adapt to millions. Um, but around like thirty percent or something uh, of people they have returned, um, since it has become relatively safer, uh, in some parts, uh, because the war has like not completely but transferred, you know, to the front line to the eastern part, but um. Still, most of them decided to stay abroad and they have like a new life there and they don't want to abandon it all over again. Um, so, yeah, a huge lines, uh, traffic jams all around the country, like uh, the highways and everything. Uh, no fuel ATMs were just, you know, off. Um, it, it was like really scary and frightening. Uh, I don't know, like petrifying me. That's a stronger word for that. Um, and yeah, the key of key of uh, the capital was kind of empty. <laughs> um, 
with just some volunteers and maybe the elderly um, who just couldn't flee and some of the uh, bravest, I would say, or maybe uh, just fearless ones. And they decided to stay here. Um, so that's it. But it was literally empty. Even when, when I came back within a few weeks, it was still kind of empty. Mm. And there we are also talking about in the beginning of the war. And I'm looking forward to hear also how it has developed, which is one of the things that we will be talking about. Before that, I can say about this project that this is a politically driven, independent, 100% voluntarily media project where we have decided to start this conversation series and publish it as a podcast. And we're doing this because I, ever since Russia massed up its troops along the Ukrainian border, felt a kind of responsibility, I think, um, to engage myself in this and to yeah use my political capacity and energy to help first of all the Ukrainians, and then nextly, I guess, the other Eastern European countries in that region. And then I think ultimately also ourselves in the end, because I think, yeah, what is happening in Ukraine, the war is, is an expression of a larger conflict between what I would say is um, the autocracies of the world and in general, the democracies of the world. So so in that case, this is not only something that I'm doing for Ukraine, although that is, of course, the focus right now, and that is where my yeah, sympathy and empathy is right now due to what all the Ukrainians are going through. But yeah, given the scale and the magnitude of the war, I think we have to keep placing it in this broader context as well, which I also think is why the Ukrainians keep saying that whenever whenever they have the chance. And <clears throat> yeah, before we, we start, I just also wanted to say now, because I've spoken to, I think, around four or five Ukrainian women so far. Um, it's Veronica, whom I spoke to already in April last year when I wrote my bachelor on the subject and then it's Daria as well and then it's Olena it's Yevgenia uh, it's you Maria and then it's also two other Ukrainians called Diana and Ina whom I also interviewed when I did my bachelor on the subject so <clears throat> yeah just um, emotionally I want to yeah express my um yeah how can you it's it's a bit difficult given the yeah, the amount of feelings i guess that i um, related to this so yeah so just my gratitude and my um condolence towards you guys Thank you so for much. Um, yeah and... for what you're going through and um and for coming coming on and if if i could express this in a in a better way emotionally i would definitely do it but it is also um, pretty difficult sometimes for me as an outsider sure. to come in and sure. uh, and say all the right words. But 
but also to um to make a rational message as well because i think maybe also with all that is happening the fact that ukrainians still are willing to come on on this conversation series and to uh, talk with me is also due to the fact that in a rational rational sense this is a very important subject and this war is very important due to what i was talking about just before the magnitude of it and so on so that um in this way for me this is also both the emotional angle because i also feel that this is getting personal for me uh, to a certain degree after i have been speaking to yeah to you and to all the other ukrainian women um starting to to know them a bit better and so on um then it is also getting more and more yeah personal and emotional for me just because of all the things i know is uh, is happening to all the families of uh, ukrainians and and thereby uh, i'm pretty sure also it, it is at least i know some things that happened to Daria's family. She's a Ukrainian who lives in Denmark, and that is just a, yeah, a very tragic story as well. Um, but for me, it's it's just um important always to bring in the rational context as well, because I think that sort of explains also to a certain degree. Uh, this is just my analysis, but but maybe <clears throat> the fact that the rationality in what the Ukrainians are doing is so high is also something i guess that enables the ukrainian to um yeah to have that willingness to to sacrifice and to um yeah and, and to to fight the struggle one of the pillars at least yeah mm. yeah so it was just to get the those messages um across the board here um initially because i think that's uh yeah it's sort of the right point to do it right now for me after having yeah spoken to so many ukrainians um over the last four months where we have been doing this, uh, publishing a conversation every week. And that's also uh, why, um, well, not only because of that, but I'm very glad that you wanted to come on as well because some of the other women um, besides Veronica have not been in Kiev or in Ukraine when I talked with them. So you maybe have a better insight as to what are the feelings that the Ukrainians within Ukraine right now is going through. So I think we should uh, start there. And you were already I'll alluding be glad to, to share. it. Yeah, you were already alluding to it in the in the beginning. But can you talk a bit about yeah, maybe first of all, how is it right now, um, daily life, and how has that developed throughout the war? Meaning that, for example, last, no, this winter, yeah, uh, the Russians really um, stepped up their attacks on critical infrastructure and so on. And I know that affected um, a lot. So, yeah, can you just talk about it right now? And how has this, all these feelings and this daily struggle developed throughout the war? Okay, sure. Let's begin, like, from what we have uh, right now. Um, and... First things first, uh, once again, Emil, like, thank you so much for what you're doing. Um, as you mentioned, you have like your personal interest and uh, you're into this topic, but also it's important, you know, the awareness and um, the, the exposure, that, that's of critical importance. So thank you so much. Um, and we, we are also super grateful to a destiny to be, to have been born in Ukraine and to, to be able to live here because that's, 
logically the most protected city right now uh, because of the all the, all the governmental um, agencies and uh, I guess the president and everyone is here. Um, and I live like actually next door to the president, uh, the, the building, the office building, like uh, in the same, just a block away. Uh, so I can feel like what's going on. Um, and um, also the, the gratefulness to everyone who either donates or just, you know, comes out to the street and um, all the rallies and support. Um, thank you to everyone who's listening. That That's of utmost importance to us uh, because like we don't feel that we are left alone. Uh, some news from some countries still, you know, um, take us down a little bit, but um, we, we know like that's life and we can just um, be in total agreement with everyone. Um, so yeah, and again, thanks to that support and especially the weapons and the air defense system uh, in Kiev, it has become possible <laughs> like to, to live here. Um, and yeah, on the one hand, we have the security kind of, yeah, relative one. We, we still can die, you know, during a coffee break, but um, still it's relative security. We have this kind of obligation because of that uh, to keep up the economy. And this is why like I have never give up, given up maybe just like first seven to 10 days uh, where kind of emotionally lost, <laughs> like I would say. Um, but then we decided to move on and we have never stopped since that day on um, because like we have this um, privilege of living in the um, capital which is protected so we have to you know work for that and keep up the economy running um, so we earn money and then we donate so we pay it to someone they pay it back and they donate then afterwards so it's like a cycle of money and donations all the time um yeah so now it looks like that's in the capital um it might seem like you know there's no war but i wouldn't agree with that because i can feel the emotional stress uh, the emotional trauma the stress i mean uh if someone is aggressive on my part i would never um I don't know if am I allowed to use like any rude words or whatever profanity? Yeah, okay. Um, I wouldn't, you know, talk shit about that person or something like that. I wouldn't be rude because they might have lost someone, you know, the night before. Uh, during a shelling on the front line, their children might have been, I don't know, stolen. Literally, that's stealing children on on the Russian part. Um, so I never know. Their home might have been destroyed a week ago, like in Kherson, when the um, dam, yeah, when it was uh, blown up, you know, the water reserve, yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know. And this empathy um, towards like maybe aggression, maybe some kind of rudeness from others, this is what I see, um, some kind of tolerance due to that too. I have never ever in my life seen so many people from different cities around Ukraine in Kyiv. It breaks my heart because I know the reasons why they have had to move. 
um it's really heartbreaking but and you know the license plates the number plates on the car the cars uh, they are from all over ukraine and i'm happy for them but also i'm sad about that uh at the same time like bittersweet um so yeah right now it's a mix of like surviving going into therapy um working and donating pretty much that and from time to time we you know have some fun we go out because that's you know indispensable we we would i i think we would have ended up in an asylum all of us unless we had some fun and it might seem weird but for most of Ukrainians, humor and making jokes is the best coping skill. Like, I have heard the darkest jokes from the military uh, because that's the only way how they can survive, and you know, mentally. Mm. So, uh, the biggest uh, issue I would say is just the ballistic missiles right now and the drones which makes no sense because they, you know, are on the different range ends of this danger um, range. Yeah. But drones are kind of difficult to shoot down because they're invisible, invisible to air defense. And ballistic missile is just, just difficult to shoot down. Mm. So yeah, the rest, we, we fight the rest with the help of friends from abroad, um, like that so far right now mm, the winter that, that was hell I mean also with uh, humor and jokes for sure but that was hell everyone was ill everyone was coughing with blocked nose and runny nose that, that was insane I, I I've got a photo somewhere like we had no lights no power with the outages and um sometimes it was um I forgot the word. There's a special term for power outages that happen every few hours. It's not flying, veering, or something like that, but um, like regular power outages. And when we could predict that, that was good. Like we were working and vacuum cleaning and doing everything, doing the washing, the laundry uh, within that few hours. But then a few day, days came with complete black blackout. And the funny thing, I mean, weirdly funny, nobody realized back then that it was a blackout. We were just waiting for the light to come back. Um, but then eventually we realized it was that the, the big blackout for a few days where the whole country was just out um, of would be, I guess, a better preposition. Um, and yeah, it was literally dark. <laughs> the good thing that this winter was mild, if it were otherwise, I just don't know what would it be like. Um, we really pray for the engineers. They are like gods, really. They, they were uh, like a completely burned, building um the critical infrastructure building and they had the you know the audacity to come in to just walk the um 
this all the particles and everything is burned um and they were just doing their work and it worked and it paid off so eternally grateful to all all the engineers and people who saved us um yeah i remember one day um like I lived back then in a residential complex, like with a closed territory, like private um, zone. Like um, we had the access cards and this is the only way to come in. Everything was off. Uh, so nothing was working, like the fences, uh, the doors, everything was open and it's complete darkness. Like you don't know who's inside and you're used to that privacy to that everything and then one day it's just gone um yeah and when there was no wi-fi and my work is completely remote um like i would say 101 percent remote um i used to get my car and i was driving around the neighborhood sometimes around kiev uh to get you know a glimpse of like a 4g or lte connection and then i stopped whenever my car i parked it whenever it was to work and i was working from the car uh for like many hours in a row and then i had to go back home the problem was to charge everything uh yeah but uh we did it I mean, um, what was we, we couldn't even pay for something because the uh, terminals were off. I mean, the mm, credit card um, machines, yeah, they were off and nobody had cash. I mean, it's 2023 in Ukraine. It means that you've got no cash. Mm, yeah, that was hell. Um, and especially for smokers, that, that was because they were super stressed out and they couldn't buy anything. And people with kids, that was insane. They couldn't buy anything. Uh, I mean, they had to, I don't know, print money or whatever um, to borrow, I don't know, like um, something of that kind. So yeah, the money, the work issue, it was literally dark. Um, there was like a danger um, of uh, running over someone and every, like radio station, every TV channel, um, they had the obligation, you know, daily to warn drivers um, about this danger because you just literally couldn't see people. Mm, even with the headlights, I mean, um, it was it was hard because it was winter and the precipitation and everything, the fog, and it's also dark, you know, from like 3 p.m. to 3 p.m half of the day you can't see uh pedestrians which is not a good thing for a driver um yeah driving and it was cold mm. then the problem of food waste it was awful because the food has gone off like all around the country in three days um everything that was in the fridge like it was gone and it's all right for someone who was here, but for someone who fled abroad, that that was something awful. I mean, yeah, people were just, you know, helping each other, helping their neighbors, um, 
like not it looked like a burglary you know because it was dark and we had a spare key but we didn't know how to use it so we were literally breaking into someone's home in complete darkness with a light with a torch you know and um on the phone um in gloves because it's super cold in like hand and everything covered um yeah but as far as i'm concerned i don't know why but crime rates haven't gone up like drastically something happened yeah some some cars were stolen or something like that but like i'm proud of my people i would say um i underestimated them to a certain degree i mean that's human nature like if it's painful you you can think of a possibility to take it especially if you're unemployed because of the war but yeah gotta give what what's what has to be given um yeah so some people were making tea uh over a candle and one of them um and we have this camping um i don't know equipment like gas burner or whatever uh, so we were making food there the, the problem is that it leaves this black fine layer well they yeah, so security and everything was literally like disrupted and stopped um it, it was super hard for people uh from what i know like i know we will come to like my work and uh, you know the psychological part and everything but um i keep you know in touch with mostly all of our students from time to time and uh, personally and um, it was hard but um, I just I'm, I don't know I was astonished I don't know mesmerized whatever uh, by this willingness to learn English I mean in literally the darkest hour um, but um, later it just um, you know I needed some time for it to sink in but the the thing is that education is a great tool for distraction and clearing your mind and uh you know keeping up mentally um so I take like real pride of what we were able to do and the way we could help Ukrainians um yeah they were they were really grateful and I was super surprised. I, I thought I would have to, you know, uh go bankrupt and whatever. But it turned out like 180 degrees the other way. And I'm still surprised about that. Um uh yeah, that's it, I guess, mm -hmm. on the previous winter. <laughs> yeah, and I think that you've covered it pretty well like um at least from now and then until the winter and i guess it, if i can just um yeah give a brief overview of what my um yeah what as my thinking about how it was before um i think going into the war like when it began no when going into the full-scale invasion when it began it was also very dangerous to be in kiev at least for the first, uh, I want to say two or three months, something yeah. like that. I know that the yeah the assault on Kiev failed, of course, luckily, not luckily, um, but due to the 
incredible resistance of the Ukrainians and due to some weapon deliveries that were given to Ukraine by some of the Baltic states, as I understand it, they were, um, yeah, so due to the yeah incredible um, spirit of the Ukrainians, their willingness to fight and their ability to fight. And they, I'm com- sorry for combined. interrupting, they, they just know for sure what Russia is and um, they have this brilliant understanding of like what it feels like I mean, on the inside. So, yeah. Mm, yeah and yeah and i was just saying that i think it was that and then as i understand that um the weaponry uh, the weaponry deliverment from the baltic states i'm not exactly sure concretely what weapons it was that they were delivering but i know for a fact that they were already delivering weapons to ukraine before the full-scale invasion of february 24th last year and that some of that equipment was essential for the defense of Kiev as well. So, so I just think that, yeah, that period in the beginning, the battle for Kiev also speaks volume to to the war in a larger picture, because we have to understand what the Ukrainians are willing to do and how well they are defending their country and all their cities. But at the same time, this. Yeah, this um, war of defense for freedom, democracy, and human rights is also fought way better when they are also equipped with the weapons that they need Definitely. to stand up against the Russian Shiav. So that was just in the in the beginning in Kiev. And then my feeling is that after yeah, Ukraine started to receive these air defense systems, it gradually got more safe in Kiev and after the Russians were also expelled like further away from Kiev that also made it more safe because then they wouldn't be in position to yeah, strike Kiev from uh, for example some of the areas right north of Kiev where they were in mm-hmm. the beginning and the Belarusians not not the Belarusians but the firing on Kiev from Belarusia has all also um, went down after that but but I still think that what you're describing about the winter and the hill that Ukrainians, uh, Kievans went through there, is very important Ukrainians, to talk about yeah, and sure. and to and to understand, because this is just a, a story of what happens to a, a country whenever they they are at war and what happens to the regular citizens as well, and I think actually the one in Ukraine is so. I don't I want to frame it correctly, so I, I I'm not going to say interesting, but I think it's um it's new at least compared to other wars that I um, know of throughout history. And because of this is a war where the war is very much going on in Ukraine, but it's going on in Ukraine while the civilians are also still staying in Ukraine. And I think that is something that we of course we we have seen it before throughout history but at least in the minds of many european citizens i think that is just something that is a bit uh, complex and difficult to understand because i think also if you look at it historically what usually happened happens here is that yeah when whenever a country gets invaded or whenever a war is happening that's not entirely true but 
what would usually happen is that the yeah the invading power then invades a country and it either gets repelled pretty fast or it does the occupation um like fully pretty fast so in that case usually civilians are not there when the war is happening it it has been a bit like that at least on the european continent and and in that way the the war in ukraine is just so different and i also watched the documentary that is called year i maybe you've heard about it or seen it as well um was this very famous ukrainian journalist and what struck me when i watched it was that the ukrainian soldiers they would sometimes go to the front and then they when the day was finished or when they had been there for i guess up to a week or something like that then they would move out of the danger zone and come into a yeah how can you say more safe area where they could actually charge their phones and yeah eat good stuff healthy and relaxed and then they would after that move on to the next battle zone the next battle scene and that is just um, something that to me says a lot about the war as well that and especially about the ukrainians and also what you were saying about the ukrainians carrying through um these hellish months that you had during during the winter and i think that is one more thing that we where where i'm from and in the yeah in the western sphere of influence that we really have to understand so that this is not, not just like some sort of war where you can go in and then use combined yeah combined um war maneuver and then it will all be over in like three weeks or something which is because i think you were talking about also sometimes foreign countries proposes narratives that are yeah sometimes they are a bit off sometimes they are wrong and sometimes they are just completely um contradictory uh, to what is actually going on and i think that is what happened with the uh, the german in apparently uh german intelligence have said certain things about what the ukrainians um is or is not doing and how they are or are not yeah, carrying out um the patterns of conducting war that they should have learned on a, yeah, a two weeks or three weeks learning course by the Germans. And and I just think it's so striking to me that people in the West comes out and says such things when the war that is actually happening in reality is so far from that picture that is drawn, for example, in the yeah, in the German intelligence report. Because as you're saying, this is um this is a war with very with a lot of layers and there is a lot of complexity that goes to to it and I think what you're describing about Ukrainians working then donating or then doing other um yeah civic work is also just very telling about what kind of kind of, what kind of war it is that the Ukrainians are conducting because it's the whole society and i guess it is it true okay so this is this is the thing that i've been thinking about actually which is um yeah it so it goes like this so my feeling is that it is actually 
sort of necessary also for the Ukrainian war effort that civilians also stays stay in Kiev, that they stay in Lviv, or that they stay in Dnipro, um, some of these other cities as well that are that are not like um yeah very close to the front line. Is um is that correct? Would you say that with the way that the war works right now? Do you mean that it's safer to stay in the West? In the West? No, no, part? no. I mean, uh, I mean it like this. Uh, so I think that for the regime in Kiev and for the army, it is actually necessary that Ukrainians also stay in Ukraine because when Ukraine, of course, you can also do something from abroad. But um, it seems a bit to me that almost all the Ukrainians that have stayed in Ukraine, they are not just staying in Ukraine and going about their daily life. They are staying in Ukraine almost as agents for the Ukrainian war efforts. And when I say agents in this sense, I mean agents yeah, for the forces that are yeah that are working towards getting a Ukrainian victory. So so is it correct that? It is a necessity for the Ukrainian war effort that a lot of Ukrainian citizens also stay in Ukraine and do what you're doing, for example. Um, yeah, I got your question. Um, well, I, I would say that there is some kind of duality in that because it depends on the area we are talking. If it's the area of uh, like active firing and shelling, then it's... Uh, and not even shelling, but I mean like on the ground um, active um, warfare, then it's way better that civilians uh, are out because like our army doesn't want to, you know, inflict pain and death and whatever on Ukrainian citizens. So this is why they uh, constantly ask Ukrainians to leave the Eastern villages and places um, where, where there is active warfare ongoing. Um, but um, yeah, if we talk something like a little bit further from Russia geographically, so that less missiles, you know, can uh, hit those cities, then of course, uh, it's the only way to keep the economy going. And um, yeah, some, even some new restaurants open up. I, I don't know how it's possible, <laughs> but um it is, and people risk, and they try. Some of them don't work out. Some of them do work out. But um, yeah, people give this um, spirit. And from what I heard from the military, I know some people. Well, I guess everyone these days knows some people from the army. Um, it's um, on the most part the reason why men and women go to war to fight because they know what they defend. Uh, this peaceful life, uh, um, this like dream, yeah, they plan for a future peaceful life. That um, picture when you can come home and someone's waiting for you. Um, a warm home, preferably, <laughs> uh, with lights on. Um, and this is what they fight for. Um, so, yeah, if we abandon all of it and just escape and flee, uh, the morale would definitely go down, for sure. So, yeah, we, we have to stay here and support them, yeah, for sure. 
Uh, mm. One little thing to add to what you were saying, um, that I have this uh, master's in international relations and um, the, except for like Germany, but it's a controversial thing for me, but uh, the Italian narrative was super distressing too. Um, and uh, um, we would just kind of stop fighting, you know, in the comments, like this has no effect whatsoever. Um, so we, we don't do that thing anymore, but the Italian narrative was also incredibly worrying and distressing in the beginning. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I Maybe I can um, jump in here. And in, in first of all, I think it's very important to get that distinction between which areas we are talking about, as you also pointed out, because of course the areas that are under direct fire and the areas that are contested and the areas that are yeah Russian controlled, of course the Ukrainian army. And the Ukrainians also want to get their citizens out of these areas because, and this is another thing that I think some people tend to forget, which is that the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian army, they don't want to yeah fire at their own citizens. So therefore, it is also easier for the Ukrainian army to recapture territories the when there aren't as yeah. yeah when the counter it, it is easier to carry out the counter offensive effectively when there isn't as many Ukrainian citizens in these areas because that enables the army yeah to to use other weapons to use other methods and also I guess given the high moral and ethical standard of the Ukrainian army. It actually also enables soldiers to take decisions about what to do in these situations that they would have otherwise found way more difficult if more civilians were in these yeah. areas. Of course, it's um, maybe in, in the large picture of things, it is possibly um, impossible not to have some um, yeah civilian lives lost also as a part of the Ukrainian counter offensive. But I just think it's when you look beneath that and when you actually listen to what Ukrainian officers are saying and what the Ukrainian government is saying, they are saying all the right things to these points about wanting to get the civilians out of these areas. And yeah, of course, it, it becomes really difficult when we are not talking about contested areas but are talking about russian occupied areas because as we know everyone who is following the war um the russian occupiers also makes it almost impossible for ukrainian citizens to get out of the russian temporarily well, they can, but the only area. way to go it is just to go to russia which is probably even worse than abandoning your own home mm, so yeah so and i just think that's such a such a tragic thing as well that so catch many ukrainians 22. yeah it's a catch 22 um but also that is yeah that is also how russian propaganda works so that they go in and they take control of these areas as they had luck with in the beginning when the ukrainian army wasn't as well equipped or mobilized 
I guess, so that they could um, have some advantages due to their, yeah, um, due to the fact that they have more capacities in terms of weapons and so on, and they, and that they probably also had a larger force in the beginning in terms of manpower. But then the problem is that, as you said, it's a catch-22 situation because then they can take people out of temporarily occupied areas and move them to Russia, which is basically just deportation. And then they will afterwards say that, oh, but we moved these people to a safe area um, because it could have been under Ukrainian fire. And that is just, um, it's a big lie. And it's very manipulating. And it is also just very evil to do it in, in that way. But but yeah, and, and that is just to um, explain also how this is also a part of Russian propaganda. Yeah. But I think it's um, important what you're saying also about the motivational, motivational factor for the Ukrainian soldiers, about them knowing that there is people at home waiting for them when this war is finished, when Ukraine have won, that they will then come back to them. So in that case, it is also not just a part of the overall war infrastructure that people stays in Kiev. It is also a part of the, um, how can you say it? So, so I, in general, I see this as an ideological war between Ukraine and Russia. And I think in this, ideological um how could you say it in this ideological context it also collision. makes the yeah collision yeah you can call it um but it's just uh, when i say ideological i may mainly mean between uh freedom and suppression and between democracies and autocracies and between human rights and yeah the opposite of human rights but also just um this ideological thing i think you could also um take that down to include also the ideology of fighting for your country fighting for your family fighting for your brothers sisters daughters and and everyone and and i think that is the feeling that maybe gets stronger for the soldiers when ukrainians like you are also staying in kiev and that is in no way to disrespect anybody who has fled because that also makes sense and i think For that sure. some of at least some of the people that i've spoken to that have fled have also come from other areas um which have been more insecure and more dangerous to be in but it's just this whole um it's just this whole thing of this war being something that is fought at every single societal level which um I think it's important to keep getting back to also in terms of how the West is reacting to all this, because in the perfect scenario, I think at least, yeah, we would be way more supportive to Ukraine. We would send way more weapons and we would flinch way less and we would dare way more. And if that was the case, then maybe all of what Ukrainians have to do wouldn't be as necessary. And that would make it, um, how, how can I say it? So it's so inspiring to see, and it's so amazing all that the Ukrainians are doing. And 
it really is heroic and standing up to Russia like that. But I also think there is a sort of, um, to me, there is also a tragic sense to the fact that it has to be like this. So for example, I saw one of the Ukrainians I spoke to, I think her brother is now in a brigade in the East or the Southeast. I think it's around Donbass. So I think it's actually in the East. And that brigade have had to, on their own, fundraise for a bus to the brigade. And I think they are succeeding. It's all in Ukrainian, so it's a bit difficult to when you do the translations and stuff. But yeah, as far as I can see, they are actually succeeding pretty well in funding these money. And that is amazing, inspiring, heroic, and all these things, which is um, what is also drawing me to keep supporting Ukraine more because I think all that is so inspiring and really says a lot about how much the Ukrainians are willing to go through. But in the ideal sense, they shouldn't have had to do this voluntarily. It shouldn't be a necessity for them to fundraise for a bus, which I think that why is it that the overall support of the West is not putting that brigade in a situation in which it doesn't have to yeah, voluntarily go fund a bus, um, not just because um, I think it is wrong in general, but also concretely because this is something, I guess, then that takes away some of the focus that they could have otherwise have had on the wall, which they um, now need to use to um, to fundraise for a bus. And and yeah, so, so I think there is a, yeah, a duality uh, in this as well, whereas... On the one hand, it is so amazing, inspiring, and so on to see all that the Ukrainians are doing. But on the other hand, it is also a bit tragic that this is the kind of world uh, that we're living in, because I think at least that the result and the response of the West, of the world that I'm a part of, should be way stronger um, and should be at a place so that these things doesn't happen. That would be awesome. We know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, um, completely. Um, mm. We are able. Um, in the yeah, the the brilliant part is the uh, huge learning process. As an educator, I'm aware of that. Uh, you know, all the missions that go abroad and they come back. And uh, I've met uh, dozens of instructors from the US, from the UK, and other countries. Um, I wanted to uh, wrap up this. Um, the, 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 what she said with uh, two points, okay, if I may. Mm, of course. Uh, the, the one thing that you said about the propaganda and that uh, Russia is basically lying about saving Ukrainians, but actually they're yeah, handicapped and just kidnapped. Uh, um, it's um, my assistant, uh, she, her father is from uh, Kherson, which was occupied uh, for almost a year. Um, he's still missing. If uh, we take it for granted that he was like voluntarily rescued by Russia, wouldn't he call his family? I think he would. But for like almost a year and a half, he's just missing and no single information, not a piece, nothing. Um, so that's, that's just one of the millions, you know, drop in the ocean, I would say. Um, an example, that just showcases the 
once again, the, the, the strong word, yeah, the audacity that to lie um, in Russian propaganda. I mean, every country has some kind of propaganda. For sure, Ukrainians also do that. Um, but at least it doesn't, you know, inflict that kind of pain to some other people like in a different country. Yeah, it's just a way to protect and survive. And um, one more little thing that I wanted to add, um, I completely agree in having this like, geopolitical vision of how things are working, that uh, these days the war has taken a form of this collision between like the Western democracy and um, autocracy and like the opposite for sure. Um, but there is one more thing. Before democracies were actually invented, um, Russia has uh, had been already destroying Ukraine, like in the 16th century, in the 17th century. It was still like the era of monarchies in Europe. So we, we are not talking about democracy. These days, yeah, for sure. Um, but it roots so deeply like into the history of uh, like the relations between the two countries, Russia and Ukraine, that, um, I mean, I'm completely sure that it's way more than democracy for them. And they are kind of an, you know, uh, forgot the word. Can I translate real quick, just a moment? Um, not a stumbling block, but now when you have no way out, dead end, yeah. They are kind of in a um, dead end because they have been believing in it. Uh, sorry for like this grammatical mistake, but um, in this idea that Ukraine shouldn't exist since like the 16th century, it's just impossible to abandon. Um, so yeah, the only way for that is just more weapon and our people sadly uh, risking their lives and losing their lives, but that's the only way. And now for sure, that's a new era with democracy and for sure we are fighting for that too. But again, the duality, and as you said, multi-layered war for sure. Yeah, multi-leveled. Um, thank you for giving me yeah, yeah, the words. Yeah, it's 100% all right. Um, I think when I say democracy as one of the values that is um yeah one of the pillars of the ukrainian struggle um it is also just it is also because i think that the democracy part about ukraine is what really it's, it's not only that as you say it's multi-layered and it's very historical as well um i'm pretty aware actually of the yeah, eastern european history especially um the soviet period ukraine um yeah the civil war in the former russian empire after the first world war and so on um so so I, and maybe it's just, it's more that when i say these values it is also to carve out what the two forces fighting each other are actually representing and to I, me, I get your point yeah, yeah and to yeah. me and to me ukraine just represents uh, freedom democracy and human rights as um like that could be the three pillars but it could also be if you take it to a more personal level 
that Ukrainians are fighting for their families, they are fighting for their cities, they are for fighting for their right to have a Ukrainian culture, they are fighting for the right to have a Ukrainian identity, and yeah, and so on and so on. So, so to me, the the list of good things as the way I understand what good is that the Ukrainians are fighting for is never ending. And I think it is the exact opposite with the, with the Russians. So, so in, in, in that way, what I'm also doing is to constantly keep pushing that narrative in the West as well, because I sometimes think that we get a bit lost in the way that we are following this war. So it is like we have kind of listed, well, not least, how can I say it? Okay, so we have laid it in the hand of the governing politicians of our countries to conduct the effort that we're doing to support Ukraine. And I think as a general rule, that is good in these cases because the leaders are the ones that will usually um have the best how can you say it how they they have yeah i also sometimes struggle a bit yeah they but they yeah they have the best capacity and they have the best knowledge and they they are there for a reason which is for example to lead um countries in such situations but i don't think that that justifies what we are then doing as a population related to this war because to me it sometimes seems as a bit as if this war is some sort of reality show that um, has a lot of um, attention in our media but it's like so you listen to the news and i think ukraine is on if you take like the national uh, television channel in denmark i think ukraine is on almost every day maybe every second day in like their um, evening news which is what most people watch um, I don't watch it every evening but but that's the sort of uh, sense that I'm getting mm-hmm. but to me watching something on the news and then not doing anything about it is not the same as caring about it if I am to be completely honest if you really care about something then you will also show it through your ex and I think that one of the reasons why to why Putin and the Russian re- regime felt that they how can I say it as is you have to constantly also remember when I'm talking about this that um I really don't want to neglect the Ukrainian position and Ukraine as an actor in all this but when an- analyzing why Putin decided to do this full-scale invasion. I just think it is very important to keep in mind what he thought the West would do as a response to such a full-scale invasion. And I sometimes get a bit frustrated with Western politicians and uh, analytics saying that, oh, Putin thought that the West would be so fractured. Putin thought that he could dissolve us and that we wouldn't come with a response because look at how unified we are look how much we're supporting ukraine and look how many times we have we have confirmed that and so on and i think there is of course a truth to that there is a yeah 
but I don't think it, I actually don't think it is completely true because I think what happened was that we didn't do anything initially. Um, we didn't do anything to deter Putin from taking this decision before the full-scale invasion. And we also didn't really do anything to deter him from keep pushing on after he did it. And right now, I think you can say that we are still not doing enough to deter him. And I think, and this is uh, actually just, um, it is not just, this is to, once again, um, make a huge praise for what the Ukrainians did. Because if you look at Western intelligence, intelligence, like if you look at American intelligence, if you look at British intelligence, German, and so on, they were all predicting that Ukraine and Kiev would fall within three days or something like that. So it is actually only the fact that the Ukrainians held their ground and stood up against all this that enabled us to do this effort, which yeah, politicians and analytics is now referring to as the argument for why Putin was wrong in his initial belief that he could, yeah, launch this full-scale invasion mm -hmm. of Ukraine without us really doing anything. And to me, it is just a fact that if the Ukrainians hadn't surprised us in this way, I think we would have kept on doing business with Russia, actually. So so maybe not maybe not yeah. in the same way, but, but if some sort of um, negotiated settlement were, uh, would have happened after that, I think that would have been the case. So, so this is just to say that tragically, I think actually Putin is a bit was and still is a bit right in his analysis of the West and of our willingness of our, how can you say it, war readiness um, and of our, um, and like the, the way that he is an, analyzing what the hearts and minds of the people in the West are is actually also a bit true, unfortunately. And that is the situation I want us to get out of. That's why I'm doing this conversation series. Um, that's why I'm talking about it every week. And this is because I think that the Ukraine is a victim, I would say, to a huge degree. Also to like um, that the Ukraine is a victim of Western passivity and neglectance towards what Russia is. And yeah, in, in the future, if we don't want this to repeat itself, it could happen with Taiwan, for example. I just think we have to get way better. And and I think it what we're doing right- It has happened before in the history of Europe. Yeah. It sadly. has happened a lot of times. And, um, but but I think to me, it's just, uh, and so how I use history, at least, is that um, the history that I know, I use that to make certain, how can you say it, uh, analysis of like today and of the world today. So I look at it historically and then I say, okay, is there any situation that reminds me of the situation we are in today? And and then I think of it in, in this way. It's not just in this way because today is the most important thing. And and yeah, we can we can always look back in history and say certain things but 
to me it's it's mainly useful in the sense that we can we can look at the history and say what mistakes we made in the past and yeah what i've been talking with some ukrainians about and also danish people is that the situation we are in today reminds a bit about the situation between the two world wars i think because we um yeah back then we had a very aggressive power in germany and we had next to germany a lot of passive powers mainly france and britain i would say you can also say the ussr but i think that the ussr is just was always an evil place it was always an evil regime and they were even allied with nazi germany so i think they are a bit of a different um, case but i think that germany and i'm sorry that britain and france in the 30s are reminiscent of britain france and now germany in the face of the of the Russian way. But um I mean I, I firstly I appreciate your sincerity and uh, secondly uh yeah the, the more weapons we get the the better the counteroffensive uh, but um I can totally get it. I mean uh I have uh, you know lived in the time of like dozens of wars happening around the world and when it does not come close to your home it's explicable it's understandable and it's okay not to know what's happening like because you you can't know it just physically because you're not there and that's a good thing um so i, I would never you know call names or whatever uh, for not caring enough it would be good to you know reflect and do something for sure but also, I can't say that like some people are bad, you know, for not doing stuff. I totally get it. We have had a frozen conflict in the east of Ukraine for eight years, and most of us didn't really care. Um, so, it, and it was like inside our country, and until it became a real peril, you know, over my literal roof. It was different. Um, it feels different. So I totally get this thing on the, like a psychological level. Yeah, but uh, the more weapons, the better. Mm, and it's also uh, just to... Um, Quick question. Yeah, Is that okay if I uh, smoke? Yeah, of course. You can do that. Yeah. Okay. No worries. It's a pretty... Um, yeah, it's a very serious subject, uh, of course, but I like to keep the attitude pretty relaxed as well. So, yeah, right. you can smoke, and uh, yeah, if you want to square, you can also do that. Um, so, so just to um, explain it fully, so I, I don't, um, I don't want to call out any people at my age, for example, and I also don't want to call out anyone um, above my age who have never participated themselves in the political systems of the uh of the west but what i think is the problem is that yeah you don't have to act like i'm doing and spending that amount of energy on it and you actually don't even have to know that much about what is going on what i would just like if if there were a better sense in the west about what is first of yeah a better sense of what is happening on a political and ideological level i would say and then also 
about what is to be done if we want this situation to stop and if we want other countries and other populations that remind of Ukraine not to get into the same situation. And I just don't think that's where we are right now. Uh, and I think that's the place that I want us to um, to get to. But yeah. that's, a, that's a political, to me, that's a political struggle just as much as it is an informational struggle. And it is this whole thing about getting a grip of what are the determining factors deciding which decision decisions leaders within the international system feel that they can take. And I think the tragedy is that we were in a situation in which an autocrat of a grand power like Russia felt that it was actually doable to do such an invasion of Ukraine. And I think that the problem is that we only have the Ukrainians to thank for the fact that this did not succeed. So in in that, well, sorry, in that way, we are kind of, how can you say it? We are living not at the mercy of the Ukrainians, but the security that they still feel in the Baltic states, in Poland, in Romania, in Bulgaria, and so on. That security is only something they have right now due to the fact that the Ukrainians resisted so much more. Yeah, it definitely would be different, mm. for sure. And But I just think that the, how can you say it? Yeah, the, the, parad the paradox in this is that we have seen that Russia is actually way more weak than we thought they were, but yet we are still terrified and yeah, fear to do stuff uh, because we think that that will then might lead to some sort of escalation and i think we just need to um to tip that balance so that instead of being so fearful and terrified we need to be firm and willing to use the power that i really believe that we have and that i really believe could hinder a lot of these yeah, problems and yeah, like terrifying situations. I think can occur in the There's world the with, the, like with the atrocities. Yeah, atrocities. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, so I just think that it is so sad that um, that the Ukrainians um, have become a victim of what I would say is a world in which the ideological power of the people and the political regimes that once freedom and human rights has weakened so much. Um, and yeah, so, sure. so, so yeah, I, I just want to thank, I just want to thank the Ukrainians one more time. Um, cause I want to do that as much as I can, um, for doing what they're doing, not just for I themselves, but that. also for the world. Um, I think we should move on now, um, to, to your work because, yeah, yeah we've been talking a lot. Yeah, but that is what uh, what happens every time I do these conversations. So I think that's um, that's completely fine, and there is so much to say as well. But you work as an um, online English teacher. You told me, and 
so the way that you described it was that you almost sometimes because of what is happening in the situation that we are in that you end up also acting almost as a psychologist because of the fact that so many of these people that are coming to you have psychological traumas um so so maybe can you um because you talked a bit about your work as well but can you maybe talk about that part specifically um sure. like how how that all is and how does it affect you as well yeah uh sure well uh, i wouldn't um be calling us you know as a team uh psychologists because we don't have the necessary certificates for that um but you know sometimes uh, your friend can be a good therapist though mm, I would call it more like a coaching session in a way in a particular way um yeah um I guess from the, the beginning of the full-scale war and the full-scale invasion um like um I am a teacher yes um I love it But on the most part, um, I'm, as you mentioned, like uh, in some questions beforehand, uh, an entrepreneur first, and uh, you know the 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 inspiration and the the drive. Um, so um, my decision was to mm, slightly, you know, move. I don't know, drift towards uh, the concept. It's called lingual coaching like linguistic coaching um, and it also incorporates the different pillars of uh, empathy and uh, reflection and somewhere that's psychology somewhere it's kind of uh, like um, marketing or NLP stuff uh, so yeah we kind of help people emotionally and psycholo psychologically um, the primary goal is To help people overcome the language barrier but um, the added value of that is that people become Ukrainians um, become more uh, confident so they take on like more interesting more influential uh, jobs and they can make a difference and through this I do believe we help Ukraine um, grow uh, step by step. And it, of course, that's a long term thing. Um, but I, I can see how people, you know, blossom <laughs> when they overcome this psychological thing, you know, from uh, Soviet uh, schools. I mean, the adults, yeah. um, we, we just primarily teach adults. That's why the Soviet stuff joined, you know, the chat. Um, So yeah, uh, the trauma, especially it, it was um, the my biggest task was to um, build up the morale within within the team, um, because they are the ones who face who might face um, multiple people throughout the days with multiple trauma. Um, so I had to you know, train them a little bit. Um, I believe I'm one of the most emotionally stable people in our team. Uh, and that's a good thing. Um, so I share it with my team all the time. Uh, 
yeah, so ways on how to support people. Um, and once again, as I said, like in the middle of the, the capital, yeah, you never know if someone has lost a relative recently. And the same applies to studying. Like if a person is, um, well, it's not, well, okay, it's getting lazy or something. Yeah, they don't do the full amount of homework, for example, that they have to before like criticizing whatsoever, uh, we ask them why, and we dig deeper into the reasons of what's happening, why they look sad or distressed or distracted, whatever. So yeah, we, we started working much deeper with the psychology and I guess that's one of the new waves in like um, education at least in Ukraine especially English language um, because there's the stigma that English is hard um, and it comes from I, I would say it's in the DNA some people it's just you know transferred with um, the blood and milk I don't know but <laughs> um and we, we try to eradicate that through yeah empathy and coaching and, and all that stuff so do you think that this is just uh, the last point you talked about so you're saying that yes you mainly work with elder people and adults yeah yeah, over 30, yeah. Um, that's when I say elder people, I usually just mean above my age, um, okay. which is 20, like a little above. Uh, yeah, adult, you work with adults um, that also experienced the Soviet time. So are you saying here that when they come to your school to learn English, it is almost as if that there is... Um, some sort of how can you say it that they have this theory about english being something that is almost impossible to learn which is and uh, what is the english word which is something that they have carried with them from the soviet time where they have probably been told this propaganda line over and over again by uh yeah the regime mm -hmm. that oh english is difficult to learn or is it, it different than that um I would say that um, yes, initially it dates back to that those times, the Soviet times and the extreme propaganda. But none of our students, uh, I mean, were born in the times of extreme propaganda, and nowhere near they were, you know, at least teenagers back then. So um, I would say just um, even over like thirty years of independence, we haven't been completely independent through all this period so um all the systems and bureaucracy and agencies i mean government agencies and all of that uh, it was all still built on the soviet pattern um mentally and i mean physically um i mean the schools and even like the teachers uh, they used to be elder from the elder group uh, of population and uh, this is nowhere near a role model for kids so it's just 
yeah, partly it comes from the Soviet times, but also it's just our, not fault, but maybe blindness somewhere that we didn't pay enough attention to languages, that it has to be attractive and interesting and easygoing because it's a way of to, to make more money, to, to make a difference, to grow, to, to be a full member of society, full-fledged um, global society. Yep. I mean, um, and this is what was lacking. And because of that, with time, it, it was just growing and growing and people, you know, uh, kids were coming to the first grade and fifth graders were, were saying like, oh, English is so boring. And uh, because they were told that by the 10th graders. So it was just naturally happening. From okay, generation so to it generation. is actually like um, my experience with German learning it in school, which was also like, it's a, it's a bit more down to earth maybe than the yeah than the than what i was suggesting so like when i was uh, learning german in preschool it was already like ugh you have to learn german uh what is it even and why why should i ever learn this um which was a feeling that yeah i also carried into high school at least in the beginning so it's more like that um a normal just um a student uh talking maybe a bit down the fact that we you have to learn english or something like that so it's it's not like it's it's more down to earth it maybe i think that's uh is that correct yeah um on the most part well, we had a chance to eradicate that older vision but we haven't yet and I guess the same happens in schools around the whole world because the world is changing so rapidly and schools just don't keep up. And that's a more global issue than just a Soviet pattern. Mm, but um, yeah, so I have a, a question here, um, which is, so you're, you're actually, you said also earlier that you were worried that due to the war maybe less people would come to you and it would be more difficult to yeah, run the school the online school but you actually experienced the contrary so do you think that in a sort of twisted sense not twisted how can you say it uh so yeah I, in, a sort, in a sort of in a sort of way this this war has also had the effect on ukrainians that now they are actually more willing to learn english is that true at least that uh but uh i'm an unbelievable optimist um and i see a lot of good um and i see a lot of love uh during the war um and i see how people are you still we have our issues but uh, nevertheless we are united more than ever and at least when we argue we have this uniting force that in the end will come to peace uh you know at a family table or whatever um and uh, one of the factors yes the people realize that the best thing the only thing 
intangible one that will always stay with you your skills and your knowledge and your um, expertise the rest can be destroyed within a moment like a blink of an eye uh, a missile or whatever can destroy everything tangible but then when you move anywhere you move if you have that those skills and everything you can rebuild your life and you can start it all over so yeah people have realized that many ukrainians have and just uh, a last question about this um about your work so you are 26 years old that is the same age as me and to that point i just wanted to ask if the work that you have been doing and the fact that you have been dealing with people with with so many traumas and so on like how has that affected you on a personal level um yeah i've been thinking if it's like um sadly i'm 26 or happily fortunately i'm 26 and i came to the conclusion that it's uh fortunately i'm 26 uh, because a i'm not that bound to you know all the tangible things that i would be collecting for like over 50 years of my life that's harder um also i'm super flexible uh, in my 26 years old compared to what I would probably be if I were 50 or 60 now. Um, so I can adapt. And also I'm open, you know, to all these new psychological trends and new visions. And uh, like what, from what I said that I, I see love during the war and a lot of it, um, the special like animal rescue, that's something that just um, people have started uh, you know, putting up uh, abandoned animals, pets, uh, so widely, like I have never seen it before. Um, and all of these good things are still happening. And then this is a perspective that I think you can only take if your mind is flexible. And the more we live, I believe the less flexible it becomes. So I think it's actually a good thing that I'm 26 when it all started and still going on. Um, if I compare it to something else, yeah. So you would actually uh, say that your age in this case is a big, uh, oh, why do I forget the word? It's a big advantage. Maybe not. I mean, you can also do it if you're yeah. 36. And but at least on the base of it, your age is a big advantage in this situation. Um, what I'm, what I'm, yeah, what I'm trying to get at is also maybe a bit more personal, like um, on behalf of you. So not just speaking about um, abilities or approaches related to your age, but also about yeah your own um, how can you say it? your own psychological development like have you felt a, a sharp increase in your learning curve as a like as a person and how has that been and and has there been like um any 
very hard periods along the way with some cases or or anything like that because i i just think as a 26 year old i mean we are of course adults but it's different to be 40 and have kids for example mm-hmm. um compared and to house uh, and everything, yeah. everything yeah compared to being 26 and just getting started with life mm-hmm. mm, so w- once again the, the question is um can you say it again yeah if it's just um how it um has affected you personally uh, the, the, so the curve yeah, you, you mentioned okay i'm sorry um yeah i've had some you know valleys uh like some troubles uh, mainly when i realized that like last year we were promised i mean promised there was a forecast that we would win this summer and this summer we are told that we can win next year uh yes it's it brings me down it brings millions of us down um and um, i'm not sure in english it's a demoral demoralization like that i mean the morale is going down demoralizing demoralizing yeah thanks um yeah it can be hard and sometimes it does get hard and also some people as always um i, I don't want to again to follow different people but uh some people don't care and it's also natural like it it's impossible for a hundred percent of population to be super diligent um so yeah when i see people who don't care it's also hard because i do care and i work hard for that um apart from that uh i i think the it has become more fast-paced and interesting because of this YOLO concept, you know, you only live once. I realized that I can literally like uh, die like next week, but not no drama. I mean, just practically. Um, and this is what gives me some additional force to move on because I feel like I have little time and God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So I have to do it today. I want to do it today. So yeah, it speeds me personally up. I'm sure many people work otherwise, you know, their brains work otherwise. But for me, it feels like that. And I started doing like amazing things. Uh, well, thanks to what's happening, I would say. Um, otherwise, I would be stuck in like the life before the full-scale war. And I'm trying to build something interesting because, again, I don't know how much time I have. So you're actually, and I'm already in the beginning of the sentence, referring to a conversation that I've had with another Ukrainian. But uh-huh. so Veronica wrote to me that the war learned her, that you have to be glad about the small things in life and that you have to appreciate the people that you care who is around you and that you have to stop up once a while also to let yourself be proud of whatever you're doing and she wrote that that was a very strengthening way 
of having experienced her emotional development so far in this war. So is is it kind of the same with you? I would say that honestly, it's not a new thing for me because before the full scale war, I have already had this on my mind. Like I believed in the small things um, that bring happiness. So I wouldn't say it's the, my biggest lesson uh, because it just reinforced maybe it's yes. Okay, but, um, but for you then, but you still said, uh, like in quotation, of course, you still said thanks to what was happened, what has happened. And so, so is it more a case of that actually for you, the full scale invasion got you going with taking some like X and doing certain stuff to promote what you were already having in mind that you would like to do and that sort of enabled you to take that jump is that um the incentive yeah not to put it off anymore all right um i i just think that's very interesting on a psychological level i guess and and this is not in in no way to um, psycho i don't know <laughs> it is psycho uh but i don't think it's psycho i think it's also pretty natural actually that um as a person when you see how high the stakes can be for you for your life and for everything that you believe in it it also makes sense that such feelings um yeah contributes to something within persons that makes them do stuff that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have done and i don't want to make any uh, comparisons at all to my own situation but i can say from my part that i was always very politically active in my youth from when i was i think from when i was 16 and then up until oh. i was like how old was i uh 21 or something like that 21 22 years old um for a large part of those years i spent as much as a full-time job um, being politically active but i kind of laid that aside and started doing yeah other stuff that like i can say normal young people would do i also did that while being politically active because it's not like a sport so you don't have to sacrifice yeah drinking and smoking and <laughs> and so on but yeah, you still yeah. have, I still uh, had to sacrifice a lot of um, yeah, deals with friends or family arrangements and so on and vacations that have could have gone on, I guess. Um, so I kind of dropped out of the political activity almost. Yeah, actually, I was also employed um, at my political party, like straight before the, like right before the full scale invasion. But I don't think that I was wholeheartedly ideologically invested at that point mm -hmm. in what I was doing. And I think that's because I felt that it didn't make enough sense for me to keep being politically active because I thought, mm -hmm. although there is things that I really want to fight for, like this is some pretty um, down to earth stuff, like cheaper um, apartments for young people in Denmark more cheap apartments in Copenhagen it's still true. where I'm from yeah um but but 
it yet it um it kind of caught up with me i think all the time i was spending and what i thought i was getting again for the time that i was putting into it but then when i saw what ukraine was about to um to go through um when russia did this um yeah mass up of troops along the ukrainian border i think that i just felt the like the political um how do you say it like the political passion to a whole new degree that i never really felt before and i felt responsibility also to another level and yeah i just think that my feelings got way stronger about yeah about my political activism um than they had ever been before and i think it is sort of the the same mechanism that is behind maybe um this drive that i that i got to um to start being active about it and to do this conversation series as well so so i think this is just to say that amidst all the yeah, tragedy and all the atrocities that are happening i think also it leads to people doing certain things that they would have otherwise not done and i think that yeah i guess it is a positive thing actually it but it is yeah otherwise only... as i said in the very beginning we would have all ended up in an asylum um like really it's impossible to just live with the negative i mean mm, exactly and yeah but it's it's just set uh, it's a set background um yeah i guess but Absolutely. but i guess that's also a psychological thing that yeah sometimes but, you know, when tragic things happen it's also it is this and maybe it is this cliche that um for for you maybe it is this sort of cliche that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger which is a very big i cliche. hope it doesn't kill me yeah <laughs> exactly yeah maybe it should be what you hope doesn't kill you makes you stronger because you then you yeah. want to fight against it so you could maybe yeah. um yeah broaden that a little um i would love to speak about the um, because i think we're running a bit out of time now i also have something to do um not that long from now so i think i will um skip the entrepreneurship theme um entrepreneurship during war although i i really think it's interesting but i just don't think we have time for it and i also think we have talked a bit about the differences between european uh, eu perspective and ukrainian perspective on yeah. life but but i yeah. think um That's that. yeah but i think if you can just um maybe in in a few sentences um sum up what you think about this because um I, i can maybe say my thinkings just before we start i think there is a very very big difference between how people from denmark perceive the world and life and how people from ukraine perceive the world and life in general and i think that the main difference there i think there is two main differences and they the reason for those differences comes down to the same factors but i think in denmark we do not imagine that war is a possibility within our lifetime so so we never we have never had the idea 
that wall was something that we have to that we had to participate in unwillingly and based out of necessity so yeah we were we went actually to war in afghanistan and iraq Denmark was a part of the american and british force there but people from Denmark who went there never went there without it was 100% voluntarily mm -hmm. so so yeah there was never a fear for me for example for example that i could end up being drafted um, and going to war so so i think that feeling just isn't there in denmark and i think that goes for yeah usa france germany britain japan maybe not japan to the same degree um let's keep japan out of this one and just take the western uh, countries because i think it's more true in our case mm -hmm. um so that's the first thing and i think the other thing is that we haven't had or at least we have imagined that we didn't have an outside enemy. So up until the Cold War ended, I think it was very much in the mindset of Europeans and Americans that, yeah, they had an, uh, an enemy. They had an, um, an adversary, which was the USSR. But when that fell apart, it almost just, um, yeah, went into oblivion the fact that we should that we did have actually that, that we still had an yeah adversary um so so yeah we have never imagined that we should go to war and we have never felt that we have that we have an outside enemy and mm -hmm. adversary and i think that is just um something that the ukrainians have felt um in both cases and that just makes people think where we differently so yeah what, what is your thoughts about this and also maybe based upon some of the international um studying you have done as well well um firstly i think that um well throughout my studies i've been i, I was and i still am um, a fan of the like realist approach and uh the geopolitics i believe the geography plays a huge part um so yeah uh not having an enemy like close to your border that that plays a crucial role um and yeah i don't think we will ever be able to escape that and from that thing um that's the root of the second difference uh i believe that's a historical memory that has never actually left our dna uh, it was probably like mitigated by something, some propaganda, whatever, but it has always been there, uh, maybe hidden. People were scared sometimes, like a hundred years ago, they were just scared uh, to speak up. Uh, but we still remember, like, again, like, yeah, from the 17th, 16th century, the atrocities that were done by the Russian Empire towards Ukrainian Ukrainians. We remember that. And uh, I think what gives us this power is the doubled ideas that we fight for. First of all, yes, this whole democracy and freedom thing, for sure. But also this personal, it's getting personal um, for all the generations that preceded, um, like we have to pay back in in a particular way 
and we just know that we kind of will because like we've had enough. Um, so yeah, the, this historical difference, yep, and um, geographical difference. And um, I guess, uh, again, it's impossible to judge people for that. Uh, it's incorrect to judge people for that. Um, but people who have not experienced war, they just, and it's a good thing. Once again, it's, it's a good thing. Um, people just can't get the whole idea of what it's like. Uh, and we were like that sometimes in our history. Um, so yeah, it's true. Um, so I guess this physical inability to truly understand what it's like to be in the middle of everything that's going on, that's the difference. Um, and, and again, this geographical uh, distance is also important, uh, really. Um, so history, this memory, um, and geography, and I guess, yeah, these are the main factors, the main differences. Mm. And I think it, it sounds very logical as well when we talk about it like this. Uh, one one point that I want to make before moving to the end is that, as you're saying, it is not something that you can criticize people for because why would they ever um how can you say it indulge themselves on a journey on which they would eventually understand it um and i also realized that i i'm pretty different in this case it's a good thing to a, not to yeah, know war i mean for real exactly yeah. but yeah and i also just get that i'm very different from a lot of i, I could say peers like people i'm studying with who also studies political science and also just my friends uh, and in general and a lot of people that I've met via politics. Um, but I still think, because this is the way I see um, politics as well, I see politics as a as a struggle between people, uh, between people with different ideas. And I think that what we have done wrong is that the people who have had the positions in which they could have teached the kids and the youth something different have decided not to over the last 30 years. This also is one of the big reasons why I think it's necessary to do this conversation series because I never learned really about the independent free countries of Eastern Europe. I never really learned about the threats that they were still living under after the Cold War. And actually, I don't think that we were ever really taught the true aspects of the Cold War. Like we were more taught it as if it was just an ideological struggle between capitalism and communism and I mean, that is a correct way to describe the Cold War as well, but it is also a way to describe it in which you make it sound as if these two sides were 
equal in a moral sense, but were just different in an ideological sense. And it's not to say that you don't get the feeling that, of course, the USSR was a bad place and it was not a place where you would have liked to live compared to where you lived. But we just never really learned, I think, why it was like that. And so I just think in yeah, speaking about it like this is also to say that I don't really think that it is the fault of the individuals to not have learned these things. And as you say, it's impossible if you don't actually live in Ukraine and know what that feeling is like and that, um, yeah, uh, geographical proximity as well. So, so it's not that I think that they could have done something different like the people in those positions and then it would have been all yeah, changed. But I just think that there is still a critique to be sent towards the people that have held the positions in the West in that that are the deciding uh, positions when it comes to determining what discourse there is in the West about different subjects. And what I've learned at least is that when talking about international politics, like grand politics, the discourse within the global narrative is just a very important thing in terms of what leaders of different countries feel like they can do or cannot do. This goes back to yeah, what I was saying earlier as well about um, yeah, us not doing the things that we could have done in order to make Putin feel as if he shouldn't have committed this full-scale invasion. Uh, even also right from the beginning, the invasion of Crimea and the initiation of the yeah the the violence in the Donbass area back in 2014. Um, so I just hope that we in the future will get better at teaching kids and young people these things, and that we put more focus on countries like Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, maybe also even Belarus, because these are the countries in which maybe not Ukraine so much more, but the other countries are countries that I think is countries that are in a deciding part of their history about whether or not they will turn out as democracies, which is what the populations of these countries want, or if they will be enshrined within the Russian sphere of influence. And of course, the, the war in Ukraine um makes it so that all these questions are very difficult to deal with right now because yeah once again as we talked about the magnitude of this war also makes it so that this will also just intrinsically influence the development in these other countries i think but the problem is that we don't pay attention to countries where the coin is actually up in the air and we still don't know the the face of the coin when it um, when it hits the table um, or the floor, and in this case being democracy, autocracy, uh, like human rights or not human rights. Um, so, so I think there is a point to be made there, with with all uh, the logical sense that goes into it as well. I think now, Maria, I would like to, uh, yeah, um, do this jingle that I was talking about, which is does the guest agree? Uh, I think you will 100%, 100% you will agree with what I'm bringing to the table today. 
um, because it, it is based upon a lot of the things that I can already uh, hear we agree upon as yeah so I don't want to say what it is now but I want to play the jingle and sure. the reason um, I have a little a quick question uh, is it possible like uh, when, when we wrap it up uh, is it okay if I take a little video of when we say like goodbye and thank you is that okay with you yeah 100 percent. okay then after the jingle yeah okay yeah, yeah so now i just need to find it here and the reason why we uh it's so it's called does the guest agree and the reason why we did it is because some of my friends told me that i was sometimes speaking in a way in which it is very difficult for the guest to take another position um which i guess is true i think that's also comes back to my political background but that's why we did this jingle which is coming now well i i just wanted to you you've made a brilliant closing statement absolutely excellent could you hear anything I heard that something was excellent and that she made some good job or something of that kind. Yeah. Uh, and also we will just uh, put in the actual jingle. So we will replace what I just played. So it will not, um, yeah, it, it will be listenable. Um, so I think the, the thing I want to bring to the table today is to make an adjustment I would say to what a lot of people is saying is happening to a country when it is at war. And I want to bring in Ukraine as a case here because I think a lot of people initially and as a starting point believe that whenever a country is at war like Ukraine, that it will have devastating effects on the country on a long term and short term, of course. And while I think these things are very true, I just think that the character of the war that the Ukrainians are fighting right now is make is is how can you say it? Like the, the character of the war is actually something that will help the Ukrainians also after the war to build up a better society and to have more respect for each other and to be more in political homogeneity. And actually, in the end, I think that when this is all over, I think that Ukraine will become a much better country, a much more safe country, a much more rich country, a much more um, politically stable country. And also, a much more um, geographically unified country. And okay, so you're uh, wearing a bit, um, but, and, and I think the reason for all this to be the case is some of the things that you have said about what, for example, happened with you and the fact that you started doing stuff that you maybe wouldn't do before the war. So you got the project really going with the English school, you started to be more tolerant towards other people. And also 
in general terms, you said all this about the Ukrainians always thinking about the war, thinking about what is best for the country, thinking about what is best for the families I have at the front and always being willing to work and to donate the money. And I think all these things are things that is, so I can say it. So in total, there is this quote about war merely being the continuation of politics. Maybe you know it, it's Clausewitz, a yeah. former Prussian commander. And I think that is a very true quote. So that when a country is at war, the whole political, how can you say it? What it did. Okay, so so a, a country to me is very much based upon the political situation in the country as well and i and i just think that right now because ukraine is at war and they are at war for what i consider as very good values i think that these values values will just shine through much clearer also in the ukrainian society after the war because the war have learned the ukrainians what it is necessary to do if you want to First, uh, first of all, you want to win the war. You have to do all these things. But on the other side of the war, if you want to have the a better society, a lot of the things that you did during the war is actually also the things that you have to keep doing after the war, always thinking about how can we make the society better? How can the people be happier? How can we have more political stability? And how can we also have a more unified Ukraine across all the regions? So, yeah, so that is my... Um, the thing I want to bring to the table today. So overall, the theory is that Ukraine, although it will be devastated also on a long term, there will be mines for years to come. There will be destroyed buildings. There will be a lot of things that will need to get rebuilt. But in very long term, I think that Ukraine actually will improve as a result of the war that is happening right now maybe i know ukraine was already in a good spiral actually before the war um, in terms of democracy level and so on but i think that that this spiral will um it will be even faster and that all these things will yeah will materialize um after the war as long as we remember the lessons because people tend to forget what was happening you know the uh mental health is more valuable to our brains so we tend to forget the negative experience um but also what why i am not i'm not doubting but the thing that we need to take into consideration i think is the geographical proximity once again um i believe that the enemy is not willing to just give up so yeah we have to be ready for sure and um work hard yep um do you uh do you agree overall with my uh mm, i agree overall yes um i would just say yeah my my biggest um distress would be at this geographical proximity and the longevity of this historical uh I, I don't know it's kind of shining can you see it yeah it's all uh, right yeah but i just i have never seen it before um and this uh, proximity and also the longevity of this narrative in russia um 
I just don't believe it's possible to be given up so quickly within a year, like or something. Um, so I, I'm just ready for like the rebuilding part. Yes, and I believe in it. Mm, but I think we just have no right to relax whatsoever. Uh, we will be just, you know, ready to fight back whenever it might happen again. Just learning mm -hmm. some lessons there. Yeah, sure. It, uh, it's very important always to take into consideration which forces that could might yeah work against what I was um, alluding to. And yeah, so it, I can um, comment a bit. So I think that geographical proximity is, of course, very important. Um, what I hope happen is that as a result of this war, Russia will also get weakened so that therefore they will not represent the same threat in the future, hopefully. Um, and also, yeah, so you said that you had to still be ready to fight after the war. I think to that point, maybe the war will also have learned the Ukrainians once it is over that they have to be ready to fight so that, but uh, of course it's, um, it's all, always very difficult um, when you give it like <laughs> as long a uh, yeah, frame as possible because it's impossible to say what would happen, what will happen within the next 200 years or so. so but just, yeah, for the foreseeable future, yeah. least, I, I really I really think that is what it's going to, um, I really think that's what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, one last thing I want to say about this stuff, because you were talking about the rebuilding, um, and this is okay, just to take before that just uh, to the previous point i i just think it's the the worst part that we could do the worst thing is to underestimate the enemy so mm. this is uh, i believe just can be done ever um again um so yeah uh, this is why all the you know readiness to fight back within like 10 to 20 to 50 years the yeah um yeah you were saying uh i think uh i was talking about longevity i i don't remember exactly what i was uh what the last point i was um i was having actually uh, but we have also talked for a long time now um so i think it's um it's good that we wrap it up um around now also with the passivity positivity here um at the end uh, yeah oh now I, I remember it sorry um yeah the point is about the rebuilding stuff um yeah. to that point i just think it is very important that we the west have to get out of the habit of saying we're not going to send attackums like the missile system that the U.S. apparently does not want to send right now, but at the same time they say, or oh, otherwise it is Germany. Countries do this all the time, and they say we are we we cannot give this weapon, but hey, we will give uh, this amount of billions to rebuilding, which is just like sometimes to me it is just like it reminds me a bit of what people used to do with the Vatican state back in the days where they had, where they would buy off uh, themselves from 
yeah deeds that they that they had done and sometimes to me that it seems a bit as if saying that we are going to give so much and so much to rebuilding or that we already have given so much and so much in terms of economical support is a sort of way of getting away from the fact that we are not providing what we should actually provide if we really wanted to make a difference um it would positive cheaper in the end i mean yeah exactly it's also cheaper in the end um but yeah i just think maybe that's a psychological thing once again that you want to help but you're also sometimes a bit afraid of what actually happens if the help that you yeah provide contains what actually helps the ukrainian ukrainians right here and now yeah so i think that would be my uh i would love to promote a value as well um whatever i would just have time for that so so today i want to uh based on the conversation i think i want to promote kindness because you talked about the fact that you had become more kind towards people that could may maybe have an aggressive attitude because you've learned that things can happen to people which will make them behave maybe in an irrational way but it is due to some things that that they just cannot deal with themselves and therefore you have to be more kind you have to be more nice and yeah so i think that uh, kindness maybe not nice just understanding yeah understanding yeah do you have anything you want to uh close off with here in at the end probably that's uh, my gratitude for everything you do and um um from time to time i you know um make some use of my academic studies that i've had and i really love it uh and when all the ideas you know they make up the big picture i love sharing it and, and i love sharing it with someone who gets the big picture um so yeah sometimes people say that i sound too optimistic and uh, i don't know detached from reality but but i'm not i uh totally am not um i just see yeah a lot of possibilities that i totally agree with you that lie ahead us the worst thing is lives uh as the price uh apart from that yeah uh we will stand ukraine will resist i've said that from the very get-go and i have never believed it more than i do now Yep. Thank you so much for the um, mm -hmm. invitation and the initiative. That was the conversation with Maria. I really hope you guys enjoyed it and got smarter along the way. Personally, the biggest takeaway for me is that the citizens of Kiev are still trying to live a normal life as much as that is possible during the war. And also that the fact that the citizens of Kiev are still living a normal life is something that is also important for the broader war effort, both in terms of yeah, war economy infrastructure and in terms of motivation for the soldiers on the front line. And once again, thanks to the producer, Frederik Wagner and Maria 
Public for Participating. Hej!